My name is Evgeny Maloletka. I'm a Ukrainian photojournalist uh, documenting uh, war in my country. In the evening on 23rd, we saw that uh, the invasion might to start soon, so we make a decision to move to Mariupol. We came to the city just one hour before invasion. All the people who been trapped in the city, they didn't realize that what can happen to them and how the Russian design of war will be. But when they realized, it was already too late. The electricity was uh, cut off. Then, of course, after that, the water. And then uh, the phone connection failed. Uh, the gas supply failed. And, and after that, after the cutting of uh, the cell phone connection, people became in panic. We saw that uh, our own eyes, how the military jets were bombing the hospitals. Uh, we saw our own eyes how uh, the Russian tanks roll on the street and shooting directly to the residential buildings. The sound of explosions is uh, continuing and continuing. The dead bodies uh, on the streets and nobody take care of them. We saw after how the ch uh, children were delivered by, to the hospital. Uh, the doctors, they were trying to resuscitate kids, but it was already too late. It was uh, horrible to see all the time and not understandable for myself why it's happening and why they do this. I'm Arthur Snell. This is Doomsday Watch, the Ukraine War, Episode 3, War Crimes. I have lost everything. It was all blown to smithereens. I was covered in blood. I don't have anything left. Last year, one hour before Russia began its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, a small reporting team from the Associated Press arrived in Mariupol, the major Black Sea port in Ukraine's Donbass region. Before the war, 
Mariupol was known as a beautiful, multicultural, historic city. You can still find videos shot only a few weeks before last year's invasion, showing sparkling Christmas trees, twirling ice skaters and handsome boulevards under a thick layer of snow. Although Mariupol was part of the Donbass region that Russia invaded in 2014, the Ukrainian army successfully regained control of the city from Russian forces in June of that year. This was arguably Ukraine's key military success, Had Mariupol remained in Russian hands in 2014, it is likely that these forces would have attempted to link up with the Russian military in Crimea. The fact that Russia did not even fully occupy the Donbass in 2022 and did not hold the key port city further undermined Russia's bogus claims on the eve of war that these areas should be viewed as separate countries. So you can see that Mariupol had become a bone of contention, a source of resentment and humiliation for Putin, long before he had launched last year's invasion. In the vulnerable city of Mariupol, just a few miles from the pro-Russian separatist region, the good weather has brought out the people. But while people here are outwardly relaxed, they're also resolute and know that what might be just around the corner is anything but child's play. It was this city that Yevgeny Maloletka and his colleagues entered in the early hours of the 24th of February 2022. Little did they know that they would end up being the last reporting team left in Mariupol, as this elegant port with its fascinating history was turned by Russian artillery and warplanes into a hell on earth. As they recorded in their harrowing, award-winning film, 20 Days in Mariupol, produced by AP Frontline and PBS, the Russian way of war would play out, just as it had done before, in Aleppo, in Grozny, and in Berlin at the end of World War II. In the first two episodes of this series, we learnt how Putin launched an illegitimate war with his attempted blitzkrieg strike on Kyiv. But this failed. So then the Russians did what they always do. They reverted to type, destroying Mariupol and other cities, killing thousands of civilians, many of whom will have been Russian-speaking Ukrainians from the Donbass region the very people Putin claimed to be saving from the spectre of Ukrainian fascism. We came to the city just one hour before invasion. The front line were moving from the outskirts inside the city and the city becomes shelled eastern part of the district on the first day and uh, we heard the sound of explosions and uh, we saw how the first houses been bombed we realized that that will be so important to to document like as it and uh, the each case uh, as uh, might be documented but of course there were so many shellings all around but you cannot be everywhere i want to ask you a bit about uh how how you lived 
um, because you've you've described this nightmarish situation: uh, the, the no power, no water, no food. Um, how how did you actually, you know, keep yourselves alive in in that environment? Um, we were sleeping in the corridors of the hospital, in the shelters with the people, and the ambulance uh, department. So trying to be with the people who we are photographing, uh, and trying to be there all the time. And sometimes it's uh, because in Mariupol there was no safe place at all. Yeah, uh, you like should like you know like thinking what you should do well you will run uh well you will get the power to charge your cameras and laptops where to find the signal because it was important to send it and not to to hide it at all so like it was really important to that people might see Evgeny, i i want to talk about a particularly uh, difficult episode of of the the siege of Mariupol, which was, of course, the attack on the maternity hospital. Um, perhaps you could just describe your experiences of of that particular event. At that day, we were covering uh, how dead bodies were delivered to the mass grave, and uh, coming back to the city center, we realized that our computers were uncharged and we couldn't edit our material. And we're trying to get to the hospital, which is, uh, was running by a generator and they have a power. And uh, park our car in the residential neighborhood and heard the sound of huge explosions. And we saw across the road a hospital and this was smoke rising. And when we came, we saw that the emergency workers are coming uh, when we come inside, uh, we saw that all internal walls of the hospital were smashed. All the equipment at, uh, of the maternity world were destroyed. And uh, the rescue workers with the policemen carried the Irina Kalinina, which were photographed, you know, and uh, they rushed to take her to the ambulance on a stretcher, but we learned a few days after that uh, Irina with her baby did not survive. We understood that uh, it will be important to show uh, that uh, the civil infrastructure uh, is bombed in the area uh, while the Russian authorities claiming they're shooting only to the military. One of the things that your film documents, which you know, is very painful, is is the number of children who were, um, you know, killed, and and the suffering and the trauma on those other children that survived. Um, can you talk a bit about that? About the experience of of witnessing this happening to to you know innocent young children um the movie which was like directed by mr slav chernov 
and after watching this, you know, like by own eyes, and then uh, coming back to for like editing and watching that again in the final version will bring you uh, to that place, and you will get the flashbacks. And all the time we watching materials from Mariupol, we can't and. For me, for example, I cannot understand and uh, I cannot realize that we were there and documenting this, you know. It's still, you know, un- be unforgettable. So it's like you, you feel sort of dislocated from, from those experiences. First, uh, um, the First kid, what we saw, which were bringing to the hospital by the ambulance and the doctors and our friends were trying to resuscitate the child. Uh, but she has a wound to the heart and uh, it was already too late. And uh, for 30 minutes, uh, procedure of the doctors, you know, and we were standing there and the doctors with the tears in their eyes Screaming like show that to Putin. He is killing our children. You know, and uh, you and in the evening, you know, you like trying to understand why it's happening again. You know, yeah. Why and why this kid, like three and a half old. You know, already dead. So it, I'm a father as well, and uh, I know like oh, if that will happen to your kid, how you will feel. And it's just one small, you know, like a, a number of kids. What we saw, who being killed there. Yeah, and it was really hard, you know, like and how it beats. Uh, us, you know, it, you definitely will not forget this. It beats us, beats doctors. Uh, and to see this and to document this, it was really important to show. Let's just remind ourselves of how it felt right at the beginning of Russia's full-scale invasion. Here's Dr. Mike Martin, military strategy expert and author of the new book, How to Fight a War. The initial phase was this sense that Russia would just walk in and roll over the whole country and then kick out the leadership and install their own leadership. And certainly that's what Russia expected to happen. Um, The Ukrainians clearly didn't. And specifically what happened was the Ukrainians allowed these armoured columns to strike fairly deeply into Ukrainian territory. And then they just hit the rear of them with anti-armor missiles so you listeners probably heard of these javelin missiles that you can they lock on to a tank's heat signature and you can fire them and then and, and forget about them and they go and destroy the target and uh, again your listeners will probably remember right at the beginning the big ask from the ukrainians was anti 
armor missiles. And effectively what they did was they stopped that thrust towards Kyiv and then they turned it back and the Russians withdrew from around Kyiv in, in two directions, both from the north back towards Belarus and then from the kind of nor east, northeast back towards Russia. And so that happened in April. And then we started to see actually the whole pattern of the war unfolded, which was that Russia does these incredibly manpower heavy assaults. And that's the kind of Russian way of war. And the, what the Ukrainians did was they very slowly retreated whilst inflicting as much damage as possible on the Russians. It's called it's, it's a type of warfare called an attritional defense. And in so fighting that attritional defense, it meant they were much more able to hold on in other areas and also to, to bleed, literally bleed the Russians of troops and also to use up incredibly large amounts of equipment and ammunition and all the rest of it. Whilst the Ukrainians may have been initially unprepared for the scale of the Russian attack, they let the Russian tactics play out to their own advantage, effectively letting them turn themselves into targets. But there's a risk here of talking about war in dry, analytical terms. But that is to ignore the reality of warfare. Mike has an important insight about this in his book. He writes, Humans are not rational beings. They are emotional beings. Hence, the guiding structures of war are emotional, concerning pride and belonging and status and jealousy and fear. Fear. In some respects, whilst Russia failed in much of its war planning, it understood very well the power of fear. And what did this Russian way of war mean on the ground? It was about instilling fear into the population. At the time, we spoke to Ukrainian journalist Romeo Kokriatsky. Even before the war started, even before the, the full-scale invasion began, there were reports, uh, I believe, by U.S. intelligence and also by Ukrainian intelligence that the Russians had lists of um, high-ranking uh, Ukrainian officials as well as Ukrainian public figures, journalists, and so on that they would try to work on. Uh, and again, we've we've heard these kinds of things before, and most people didn't pay it to mind, or we just assumed, well, yeah, of course they would have lists. Um, but at the time, no one really thought through what that actually meant in practice. Um, once the uh, liberation of Bucha began and the Ukrainian military went in, suddenly all of that was thrown into really stark relief. The rumors, the very worst rumors, and even worse than that, were true. Um, we learned exactly how and what the Russians used these lists for. We learned why they had taken mobile crematoriums with them. To be honest, I'm still in shock. I'm not really sure what can prepare you for taking such a psychic trauma. And and I'm speaking as a person who doesn't have friends or relatives in these areas. Um, for people who do, I, I can't even begin to comprehend the scale of the loss um, and, and the, the pain that they're going through right now. It's as if the Russians have read the bit in the book about fear, but they've ignored the bits about pride, belonging, and status. 
The idea that if you massacre, rape, torture your enemy's civilians, you might just galvanise them into the most determined force you have ever faced. Fear alone doesn't win you the war. On one level, as you said, you know, prior to the invasion, it was possible to believe that this might happen. There were certain sorts of warnings. And of course, you can look at the conduct of the Russian military, for example, in Syria, the so-called double tap bombings targeting uh, rescue workers and so on. So on one level, you can say, well, we knew this was going to happen. But on another level, so many Russians themselves have Ukrainian close family. The idea, of course, of this crazy war is somehow that Ukraine is is just part of greater Russia, that you're all one people. You know, this isn't about anymore about one or two bad apples or about uh, a crazy president doing something. This seems to be across the board, the activities of the regular Russian military. How do, how do you try to rationalize or understand that? Unfortunately, that aspect is quite simple to do. First off, by reading what the Russians themselves are saying, how the Russians themselves are justifying these acts. And another thing is to, of course, draw historical comparisons. This is, to my deepest regret, far from the first genocide um, and ethnic cleansing that this world has endured. For Ukrainians, this is far from the first time that we have been subject to Russian aggression to kill um, a good a good portion of us. The Holodomor was a uh, famine created uh, by the Stalin regime in the 1930s. Uh, basically, Russia was attempting to quickly industrialize following the revolution and following um, Stalin's seizure of power. And as a result, the industrial cities in Russia needed a lot of food to uh, feed all of the peasants that they were carting in from the countryside to work in these factories. So they would force Ukrainians to harvest and ship all of this food, and then they would simply uh, ship it all to Russia, leaving basically none for the local population, um, which, of course, triggered a, a mass famine that killed millions upon millions of Ukrainians. And this kind of disregard for Ukrainian life is unfortunately something that we as Ukrainians are used to feeling. What is news um, is the openly kind of genocidal language uh, and and the twisted justifications that they're now using. It's it's no longer brotherly nations or anything like that. It's it's, um, just straight up fascist rhetoric. Um, So unfortunately, understanding how they do the things they do and why they're doing the things they do is not so difficult. The hard part is figuring out how to stop them before they do it again. What do we actually mean when we talk about war crimes? The Geneva Convention, which Russia, as the Soviet Union, signed up to in 1954, lays out the laws of war. Notably, it forbids willful killing, torture and inhumane treatment, as well as outlawing the taking of hostages and forced deportations. And it gives universal jurisdiction over these matters. That means you can pursue the perpetrators of these crimes anywhere. Well, that's the theory. What does it mean in practice? High-profile human rights violations have been recorded in Ukraine, 
Of course, for example, the torture and killings in Butcher, the missile strike on the Kramatorsk railway station that killed 60, the enforced deportation of Ukrainian children to Russia, and the indiscriminate bombing of Mariupol. The International Criminal Court has put out an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin and his Children's Rights Commissioner in relation to mass deportations of Ukrainian children. But Russia hasn't signed up to the ICC, and nor has Ukraine, or the USA for that matter. So is there actually a mechanism for prosecuting these crimes? The Ukrainian Centre for Civil Liberties was the winner of the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize. I spoke to their executive director, Oleksandra Romantseva. Oh, it's a really good question. I see two biggest, like, main problems here for this system. First of all, it's agreements. So, like, each country signed these agreements. For example, South Africa, who last two days told about we, we will resign Rome Institute because we don't want to arrest Putin and he needs to come to BRICS forum. Um, so, first of all, it's agreement. That means that um, outside the states, in international level, we don't have mechanism exactly if some of members of this agreement broke it. It's not like national law when you have a police and court who need to put you inside the obligation, inside this agreement. So, uh, And such mechanisms need to be exactly Council of Security of UN. And it's really difficult when uh, aggressor inside this uh, uh, council. Now we speak about old version of wars in these documents. I mean, uh, only now I see three new kinds of uh, war crimes, which exactly not described in any uh, international humanitarian law documents. It's like this, uh, kidnapping of civilians and transfer them to the territory of Russia Federation. Second one, it's uh, cyber crimes cyber war crimes, like 24 February, Russia Federation trying to destroy it, hold the state register inside the Ukraine system. And third one, it's a propaganda question. It's really difficult to, you know, separate exactly freedom of speech, which all of us needed to be protected, and propaganda, which exactly create virtual reality when one 140 million people inside the Russia Federation can even see and can't believe that Russia arming aggressive attack of Ukrainian population. Yeah, that's why it's so important just to manage and renew system of uh, exactly preventing prevention of wars. But how realistic is it to expect a, an actual prosecution? If you look at Sudan's president, Omar al-Bashir, he successfully ignored the ICC warrant against him, and Sudan is far less influential than Russia. That, that's a problem, that exactly Putin not believe in rule of law, uh, and he don't want that rule of law was a main power. But uh, it's possible. You know, yesterday we speak about exactly justice, and one of the uh, representative speakers, she was in Srebrenica, when all of us discovered these genocide crimes, um, killing more than 7,000 Muslim uh, men there, and nobody believed that in that moment uh, Milosevic and Karadzic will be uh, accused and will be arrested. But there it was. Meaning, when we speak about human rights like a system, 
it's exactly, it's not a mythology, it's not a fairy tales. That was created after Second World War, this uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights was created exactly to not give opportunity hell like uh, like Third Reich and Second World War happened again. Human rights system, it's a system of preventing of war. And Ukrainians have a possibility to resist now. We have a freedom. Even now we uh, we uh, investigate corruption system. Even now we feel that if somebody call themselves president and uh, not uh, not exactly made their function like Yanukovych, we need to, we need to rise up because it's it's our obligations, it's our duties care about our state. It's happened only because 30 years Ukrainians have a human rights. We we need just remember that Putin are human. We all of us we are humans, and that means that we have a power to create new mechanism, to create a new form of justice. Sure, if we're just sitting and waiting, it's not happened. But Ukrainians, it's not the people who just sitting and waiting. And I think, like a result, we exactly can punish not only Putin but hold the power system in Russia Federation who exactly attack Ukraine and keep this aggression actively nine years and who poison them the propaganda and all of this will be judged. It's not till gods create this system, you know? It's just the simple humans who care about that. As we heard there, legal accountability is a possibility even when it takes decades to happen. The place and jurisdiction of that accountability might still be determined, whether it's the International Criminal Court or the European Court of Human Rights or some other special tribunal. At this stage, the priority is to gather and secure the evidence. Tatyana Pachonchik is the head of the Ukrainian Human Rights Foundation Zemina. Since Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014, she's been leading teams of investigators documenting their war crimes. Yes, uh, from the first days and weeks of the occupation of Crimea, uh, we've been working documenting all the facts and evidence uh, of grave human rights abuses in the occupied peninsula. For example, Russia started its practice of enforced disappearance. Uh, uh, and uh, on 3rd of March 2014, the first victim uh, was uh, abducted. Uh, it was Crimean Tatar activist Rashad Ametov, who went uh, to Lenin Square in Simferopol to protest against the Russian invasion. And he was uh, taken, there is a, uh, recording from video cameras. He was taken and in two weeks his uh, body was found uh, tortured till death. So uh, what we see that uh, Russia is repeating its patterns. Uh, the patterns that we saw in Crimea in, back in 2014-15, uh, we see it uh, on a much bigger scale. For example, we can speak about thousands of uh, such cases of abductions and forced disappearances of torture cases. But we see that also uh, we are in this situation now because of lack of adequate response for what happened in Crimea and that no one was held to accountability for committing all these crimes and uh, they received only medals and awards for doing all these things. 
Yeah. And of course, what you're describing seems to be the Russian way of war. Could you um, help our listeners understand some of the numbers? I know that the Ukrainian state is trying to document individual war crimes. Um, so perhaps you could you could share with us some of those uh, some of those statistics. Yes, uh, at the current moment, uh, uh, today is twenty first of uh, April when we are recording this uh, podcast. Uh, um, it is seventy nine thousand three hundred nine uh, individual criminal proceedings based on the facts of uh, alleged war crimes committed in the course of the Russian armed aggression. But um, a lot of cases are still underreported and uh, not discovered. Uh, first of all, these numbers don't include, uh, largely don't include episodes from the territories which are still occupied, like, for example, the city of Mariupol, when Ukrainian investigators get access there, there would be hundreds, if not thousands of new episodes. Yeah. So I, I am afraid that still these data uh, are not complete and they will grow. Yeah. Um, you you mentioned there your you, the field missions that your organization, Zamina, undertakes. How do you uh, is kind of keep going? I mean, I know that you're very busy. You have to travel a lot. You have a lot of pressure on you. And I know that your own family was was uh, dislocated by the war in the early days from Irpin and so on. Uh, so how how do you how do you maintain your your kind of motivation and determination? Uh, you know, it's very difficult to uh, work with all these cases, to document it, to hear uh, about very cruel behavior of uh, Russian uh, occupational forces. Uh, but, uh, you know, sometimes people uh, feel desperate uh, and the grief is so huge when you read uh, this uh, very sad and dramatic news when something bad is happening to your friends, colleagues, relatives, uh, uh, when a lot of our uh, family members and colleagues are at the front line as a part of the Ukrainian armed forces and uh, we receive uh, bad news every day about uh, murders at the front line. But then in the, in the end of the day, uh, we would like that uh, justice would pre should prevail, uh, that uh, these people who committed all these crimes would be held accountable. And uh, this is a very good motivation, you know, to continue working with people and to do everything possible. Of course, it would be very difficult to identify every, every you know, perpetrator, but at least we can do our best uh, and to work as hard as we can to make this justice happen.
Um, I'm John Sweeney. I'm an old school reporter. I used to work for The Observer, then the BBC. I went on Valentine's Day last year to Kiev and I became a little bit famous for being the old guy in the silly orange hat who never left during the Battle of Kiev. So October the 10th, I'm in my flat and then something happens. You can feel a shake and I think, oh, I've had a stroke. Um, it was bad. It was so discombobulating, I didn't go onto Twitter straight away, which is what I normally do and what I should have done. And only then do I start looking at the pictures and I see that, that the Russians have put cruise missiles into the very heart of, of Kiev, in particular into this beautiful Tarashevchenko Square. And I get on an e-bike and as I'm riding down um, towards Golden Gate, then I'm going to take a right towards the park. I can smell the stink of war. And actually, George Orwell wrote about this, the smells of war. Mm. And you know this because you've been to Iraq in the bad times. But it smells of burning stuff, burning wood, burning plastic, mm. often petrol, ga gasoline, whatever, yeah. and human flesh. And then in the park itself, thank God nobody was killed, but they hit a children's playground. Mm. It was brutal, and this was the start, as well as hitting these uh, targets, they were also hitting power stations. And there was a time when um, they were switching off something like two-thirds of electricity supply. And by the way, that means in the closer to the front line, you know, hospitals lose yeah. power. That's a war against ordinary people against the rules of war. Of course, the Kremlin doesn't give a fuck. So I think October the 10th was one of the worst attacks. And then these attacks have got less and less severe against Kyiv. Mm. But um, my last trip, I went past the Dnipro and the, you know, it was a massive um, apartment block smashed to buggery by a Russian cruise missile. Yeah. You can see people's bathrooms, kitchens just because the external wall is peeled away and and then yeah. it's like watching a doll's house yeah. but it's surreal this feels to me very much like what i've read about the the v1 and v2 attacks by mm. the nazis and in exactly the same way in exactly the same way they didn't work against the british people no you know, fuck you, Adolf Hitler, and we're going to win this war. But at the same time, the human misery, the suffering is off scale. Veteran foreign correspondent John Sweeney has been tracking Putin's crimes for nearly a quarter of a century. And he's still at it, now based in Kiev, reporting this war. I caught up with him on one of his forays back to London. But this doesn't start for me in Ukraine. It starts 23 years ago, um, Arthur in Chechnya, the Second Chechen War. What happens is that Putin becomes, um, he's appointed prime minister and he's a nobody. Uh, he really is a kind of ghastly secret policeman in a cheap suit. And his approval ratings are 2%. He's going nowhere. Yeltsin's appointed him towards the very end of his alcoholic senility. And there's no sense that Putin's got any future unless something extraordinary happens and that extraordinary thing does happen. There's a series of bomb outrages blamed on Chechen terrorists in Moscow and some cities in southern Russia. 
there are two um, apartment blocks, working class apartment blocks. There's bombs in the basement and 300 Russians die. And you can cut the fear uh, with a knife. But there's something weird about it all. Um, the guy who planted the bombs is a Chechen. The bombs go off in September 1999, and he died earlier in the year. Dead men don't plant bombs. No. It stinks to high heaven. And there are two brilliant uh, bloodhounds who investigate the story of the Moscow apartment bombs. The Anna Politovskaya and um, Yuri Shakachikin. Yuri Shakachikin is a brilliant investigative journalist, and he's an MP. And he dies first. He takes tea with the secret police, the FSB, the new name for the KGB. In 2003, his hair falls out, his skin starts to flake and goes to hospital, never recovers. The second person to die was poisoned first. She survived, then she was shot, Anna Politovskaya. There was a bomb that didn't go off in the town of Ryzen, and, and I went there in, um, in very early 2000. And what happened at Ryzen was three people, two men and a woman, were seen leaving something in the basement of the block of flats. This is when the, the paranoia, the bombings are happening, happening. And they call the local cops, and the local cops come in, and he detects... Hexagon, which is the military explosive used in the bombings in Moscow. And then the next day, the head of the FSB, the new name for the KGB, old name, same tricks, the head of the FSB says this was all an exercise. It was never a proper bomb. The locals say, well, then why on earth did you move 230 people in the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning, including an old lady who was mortally ill? Why, you don't, you know, if it's an exercise, you don't move everybody out at that time. So all of this leads me and many other people, including Christopher Steele, the former head of the Russia House, as it were, at MI6, who wrote the great report about Donald Trump, believe that... The Moscow apartment bombs was a black operation by the FSB in favour of boosting the political image of the former head of the FSB, Vladimir Putin. In simple terms, Vladimir Putin blew up Russia. Yeah. He used this as an excuse to launch the Second Chechen War. Yeah. And I went undercover to Chechnya for a Channel 4 film dispatches, my old paper, The Observer, and I saw evidence of horrific war crimes by the Russian killing machine in um, February 2000, 23 years ago. And in my paper, The Observer, I first called Vladimir Putin a war criminal 23 years ago this month. It, it's an extraordinary uh, resonance because one of the things which uh, those of us who, who read your reports at the time or who've gone back to them will we'll recall is the scenes of devastation. Another place where this kind of Russian way of war has unfolded has been Bakhmut, where effectively a kind of World War One style trench warfare has unfolded. I think you, you paid a visit to, to, to that city at I'm, one point. I've been to Bakhmut seven times. Right. Um, they have, the Russians have, you know, there isn't an intact building there. Mm. Um, and 
it's not just Putin's Russia. This is what Russia did during the Second World War, and then they did it again in Aleppo. Yeah. Um, and they did it in Chechnya and they did in Grozny, and they did it in Aleppo, and they've done it to Mariupol, and they're doing it to Bakhmut. Yeah. So a great difficulty, a massive... Okay, like in plain um, Anglo-Saxon English, I want to say to people like Macron and Schultz, and they're getting better, but I want to say to these people, if you think you can no- negotiate with Vladimir Putin, what the fuck do you think you're thinking about? Yeah. What the fuck's going on inside your head? Look at the photographs, look at the videos, look at the endless drone footage. Of You're, you're seeing cities where every single building looks like a version of Hiroshima. Yeah. And the reason for that is intense Russian artillery bombardment without compunction, with, without any respect for human life or the rules of war. The Russian army commits crimes against humanity, commits war crimes on repeats. And to my own personal knowledge, has done that for 23 years. Disinformation. War crimes. We want to say that this is Putin's way of doing war. But it is also Russia's way. Individual soldiers have to take a decision to do something they know is morally repugnant. As we know, the so-called Nuremberg defence, we were only obeying orders, is not in fact a defence at all. So what is it that ordinary Russians think about these episodes? How do they rationalise this? There's lots of media footage of ordinary Russians who say casually, as, as if it's just a statement of fact, that Ukraine is full of Nazis and what do you expect? So what's your view, Romeo? Are Russians um, disbelieving that these massacres are taking place or do they believe they're happening and they believe that it is justified because of this um, sort of fake accusation that Ukraine is a Nazi country? I think, like all modern disinformation, it's all three. And yes, that is contradictory, but that is the state that modern disinformation, not ironically, I guess, pioneered by Russia has led to. As I've said before, the point of disinformation is not to make people believe in a narrative, but make people believe that nothing is true and nothing can be trusted. So if you call Ukrainian Nazis, well, maybe that's true. If you say they've staged a massacre of their own, maybe that's true. If you say um, that you've done a just cleansing of the Nazis, maybe that's also true. No one can tell. And as a result, everything is permitted. Um, All of this is post facto justification for the aggression that Russians have been heaping upon Ukrainians for hundreds and hundreds of years. Their reasons may change, but the material acts that they commit, which is the suppression and eradication of Ukrainian identity, has stayed remarkably constant over the past, I don't know, 500 years, 400, 500 years. So it doesn't really matter what they say, because what they keep doing is the same thing. Maybe I missed it, but I haven't seen really any Russian disinformation or Russian news source, anything from Russia or its agents in this country in a very long time. All the misinformation propaganda I see comes from the White House. Hmm. That was Tucker Carlson, the leader of America's populist pro-Putin parade. For Russia to be able to get away with its war crimes, there has to be just enough doubt 
disinformation, debate, for it to be possible that this is all part of an elaborate Western hoax. And whilst Russia has proved not to be very effective at fighting a conventional ground war on the plains of Eastern Europe, it is still very effective at pushing out and promoting false narratives. Let's cast our mind back to earlier Russian war crimes and the ways that they have deflected their responsibility onto others. The bombings of Russian apartment buildings carried out by the FSB but blamed on Chechens. After the destruction of the Syrian rebel-held city of Aleppo by Russian and Syrian forces, Russian propagandists accused Syrian civil defense volunteers, the White Helmets, of staging chemical weapons attacks in order to justify retaliations against Syria. And in the terrible bombing of the maternity hospital in Mariupol, a Russian state-connected channel retweeted by its embassies worldwide claimed that the entire incident had been faked. That's why it's so important to share the stories of those that were witnesses to these events. In episode one, we heard from Oxford academic Vlad Mitnenko, who grew up in Ukraine, in fact, not far from Mariupol. Let's hear what he had to say. Yes, last uh, August, I've met a group of uh, refugees from Mariupol uh, who drove through the uh, war-ravaged city into cars on the 24th of March, 2022. That was about a month uh, since since Mariupol was under siege. And, and they drove through Russia to the Baltic states on the way to Germany. And I met them in Lithuania. Uh, and, and I was quite interested because I've, I've lost, or at least I, I have five relatives missing in Mariupol whom I've been trying to reach out to. And I've put them on all the missing uh, person records in, in, in Ukraine. Uh, but so far, unsuccessfully, uh, we don't know what happened to them. Uh, so she told me that I shouldn't hope too much of finding any of them. And the second thing she told me that she, she feels disgusted that she had to speak Russian uh, because that's that's the source of evil. Uh, and that is the, that was quite an emotional, uh, I think, meeting that we've had uh, and the one I will never forget. It's vital that we listen to these accounts. Here's Tatiana. Yes, uh, just uh, several cases which were brought from the last missions. Uh, as I mentioned, we work in different regions. For example, case in Bucha. Bucha is famous for all the world, and uh, this is a city, actually a small, beautiful city near Kiev. And uh, we documented their case of Sergei Pagarelov, uh, the man was detained on 3rd March last year uh, when he was trying to uh, go in the village. Uh, he went from his uh, uh, like basement to outside to check the condition of his friend's house and R- Russians uh, uh, saw him and uh, found, they found screenshots uh, of some like local area map on his uh, cell phone. So he was unlawfully detained for four days between 4th and 8th of March last year. He was held in locked wooden chest on the street. Uh, And uh, then, uh, like this story finished that he was uh, not uh, executed and uh, everything is good with him now, but uh, the fact of how, how he was detained... 
Another story is uh, uh, from Kharkiv region, uh, Anatoly Tutov. He is an entrepreneur from Balaklia. It's a uh, town in Kharkiv region with, which was liberated. Yeah. Anatoly is an uh, uh, activist, former local council member, and uh, he was uh, linked to some local political parties, uh, like patriotic po- political parties. FSB representatives unlawfully detained uh, uh, Anatoly um, at the National uh, Police Station in Bal- Balaklia. And during this period of detention, he was repeatedly beaten, subjected to electric shock torture and uh, psychological torture, which included mock shooting and threats of uh, mutilation. And the reason was his uh, pro-Ukrainian and uh, patriotic position. Wow. Um it's uh, it's extraordinary because, of course, you know this is just two cases, and as you said, there are there are now nearly eighty thousand. Yeah, that's uh, that is something that we will work on for a very long time. War crimes, disinformation, cynicism. These all feel familiar elements of Russia's actions in Ukraine. And they don't seem to be working. The Ukrainians' determination to drive Russia from their territory has only increased as a result. Indeed, it was in the aftermath of the Bucha massacres coming to light that Ukraine's President Zelensky said that this was closing the possibilities of peace negotiations with Russia. And does anyone outside Russia seriously believe the disinformation? Well, the sad truth is that it does have an impact, even in the most powerful country in the world. Donald Trump has made it clear that he thinks Russia should be given the Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine, as he calls them. Even Ron DeSantis, who unlike Trump doesn't have a history of cozying up to Vladimir Putin, has made it clear that he sees the war as a territorial dispute of little interest to America. And why do we care what they think? because Ukraine's ability to fight Russia with a Republican in the White House will be severely limited. The realistic possibility of a second Trump presidency is one of the greatest fears striking the pro-Ukraine international coalition. The disinformation is working. And that's why the testimony of brave journalists like Yevgeny Maloletka and the dogged investigations carried out by the human rights defenders such as Tatiana are so important. It will be necessary to fight this battle for the truth for years to come. I don't know like what to say, you know, to the people who are not there and didn't saw their that by their own eyes. For me, like it's uh, as well is another war crime what they did uh, as a Russian media and the Russian telegram channel that we are informational terrorists and that we are uh, spreading the fake news uh, doing a staged photograph etc so like it was really important to show but it was only one uh, 
one place which uh, which were like highlighted. So, yeah. And finally, I want to ask you about what you've done since then, because you haven't. It would be completely understandable if, after this experience, you decided you know you'd had enough of this work. But you you've continued this work. Can you say a little bit about? Uh, where you have been since since the siege of Mariupol? Um, we've been documenting in uh, uh, the aftermath of Bucha. We've been documenting aftermath of Chernihiv, uh, Kharkiv, uh, Mykolaiv, Kherson, and uh, liberation of Kharkiv region, uh, Izum mass graves. Uh, fighting at the Donbass, and uh, I've been in all, mostly in all areas where the war is going on, and uh, we're trying to um, all the time, you know, don't stop, you know. And, but I feel that are we doing enough? And because it's very hard nowadays. Uh, to do a picture or to involve uh, the media attention uh, to to the Ukrainian topic, because after one year, of course, uh, all of us are tired, uh, and the people from abroad are tired to watch uh, horrible pictures from Ukraine, and uh, the people deaths, uh, destroyed houses, and rocket attacks, etc. But uh, uh, the war, unfortunately, is still continuing, and every day our cities under shelling and under attacks, like Slovyansk, a few weeks before when they hit a residential building. Yeah. And it's happening every day. And all yeah. of that should be documented. When Yevgeny and his colleagues shared the awful truth of what had happened in Mariupol, did we really hear them? Join us for the next episode as we explore the West response, the Ukraine war, Europe in shock. The 24th of February 2022 marks a watershed in the history of our continent. With the attack on Ukraine, the Russian President Putin has started a war of aggression in cold blood. That is inhumane. It is a violation of international law. There is nothing and nobody that can justify it. Doomsday Watch is written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced and edited by Robin Lieber. Group editor is Andrew Harrison and our theme tune is by Paul Hartman. Doomsday Watch is a podcast's production. Doomsday Watch is a production.